Welcome to Below the Line, where we talk about working in film and television from the crew perspective. My name is Skid. I was an assistant director in Hollywood for the better part of eight years. Now I'm not. Today, we're talking about the NBC series Law and Order, which ran for 20 seasons from 1990 to 2010. The show is set in New York City and followed a predictable formula. For the first half of each episode, we follow the detectives investigating a case and invariably making an arrest. The second half focuses on the prosecution of the same case. Hijinks ensue. At Rotten Tomatoes, season one has a tomato meter score of 78%, and season 20 has a score of 67%. For the critics' consensus reads, Law and Order adjourns with little fanfare in a final season that declines to tweak the series' formula, but viewers can take comfort in the procedural bowing out with the sterling cast and its efficiency intact. Worth noting that Law and Order spawned five spinoffs, a TV movie, and a number of foreign language reimaginings. It existed in the same universe as Homicide Life on the Street, and there were some crossover episodes. My first guest today is David Tutman, better known as Tut, who started with the show in season one as a camera focus puller, and by the time season 17 rolled around, you were working as a director of photography. Tut, welcome to Below the Line. Thanks, Kid. Nice to see everybody. It's been a while. So, so Tut, what are you working on these days? Well, I'm uh, currently working as a director, mostly, and uh, I'm, I'm uh, directing an episode of, the Pro of Prodigal Son right now, and uh, then a very open schedule after that. But, uh, but things have been going nicely. It's an interesting transition. Well, I hope that uh, show goes well and more opportunities for you in the future. Thanks Ooh, for being thanks. here today. It's good to be here. Next, we're joined by Kira Smith, who was a sound utility at the start of season six, quickly became a boom operator on the show, and stayed through season 12. Kira, welcome. Hello. And Kira, what are you up to these days? I'm working on a NBC series. Uh, called Manifest. I'm working on the second season at the moment. I hope that's going well. Can you guys shoot that in New York as well? Mm -hmm. Actually in the same uh, studio as Prodigal Son, actually. We're well, you guys can be getting together for lunch if you're not already. Let's uh, catch up with each other. Uh, thanks for being here, Kira. Glad you're here. Finally, we're joined by returning guest Dan Fisher, who was a standby set dresser on the show for season seven through 14. Dan, welcome back. Always a pleasure to be here, Skid. Thank you for having me back. So, Dan, what are you up to these days? I am working on an Apple, another Apple TV show. With Apple, you're always kind of constricted as to what you're allowed to say and not say. All I can tell you is it's a gigantic budget science fiction show that will come out on N Apple TV sometime in the future. Yay. Yeah. <laughs> well, when it does, you're going to come back and tell us about it. But in the meantime... Let's turn our attention to Law and Order, and there will be spoilers uh, for folks who have not caught up on all 20 seasons of this show. Proceed at your own risk. As I noted before, it's set and filmed in New York City. I know that you are all New York City-based. How did each of you get involved with the show? Well, I, I started in season one. Um, I was invited to uh, become an A-camera focus puller on episode seven in the first season by Gus uh, Macris who uh, was coming in to shoot the show. And I had been working as a second assistant and additional focus puller for Gus for a number of years at that point. I came along and uh, had a real trial by fire there because it's a, a tough handheld show where the camera gets pretty close. And it was an interesting time uh, where I really had to kind of gain a quick understanding of a new craft. As you mentioned earlier, you moved up the ladder in the camera department by, by any definition. But first, so Kira, you came in at season six as a sound utility. What triggered your involvement? The utility was leaving, and I had met David Platt, the sound mixer, a couple of years before. I um, worked on an East Coast Council job with him as a utility, and I had just gotten in the union, and um, Dave and I hit it off, and he really wanted me to, to, to come on board, and so he asked me. And I came in on uh, January of 1996. Listeners who are not aware, sound department has three folks in it. There's the sound mixer, the boom operator, the person holding the long pole with the microphone, and then sound utility who's basically wrangling cable, helping things. You, you want to say a little bit more about what that job involves? It's, it's equipment maintenance. It's wiring people. It's uh, cabling for those people still silly enough to use cable. <laughs> 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 which, Things have which changed, I say, right? No, they haven't, because I'm still working ah. for someone that uses cable. <laughs> anyway, um, it's a lot. It's a catch-all. There's a lot of things that the utility does. Uh, solders, cables, fixes things. 
so it was actually really good that I got promoted to boom operator because I was pretty terrible. <laughs> it was a pretty terrible utility. So, well, uh, equally, we'll talk more about the promotions and and moving up the ladder. Uh, but first, so Dan, you started with season seven not long after Kira. What got you involved? Well, uh, like Kira, I was pretty new to being in the union. I'd done non-union for a, a number of years. And then when I finally got in, one of the first jobs I was able to get was offset just here and there as a set dresser, offset. Uh, but the lead man, Tom Conway, had recognized that I did have a lot of onset experience. And so when they needed a new onset dresser, uh, that's where I came in. And, and what an onset dresser does, by the way, is, uh, is I help. I work very much in conjunction with Dave and also with Kira, or I did, to set the frame. What, what picture is in that frame? You know, the frame is set with the actor usually more or less in the center and, and, the, and the background objects and the, and, and the furniture and so forth. All of that is also part of, this, uh, of, what, of what we're seeing. So I help to set up the basics where, where the actor's sitting and so forth. But then I also helped to make sure that, that the frame was an interesting one, that, a, that a, a picture didn't look like it was coming out of somebody's head or, 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 or that the curtains were open to, to give a nice light onto the actor's face. And you also helped me as the boom operator by moving things that I would otherwise oh, yeah. break. Break. Sometimes, <laughs> break eyes. Sometimes yeah. in the same shot, too. Sometimes during the shot, we have something called Hollywooding where you know, if Kira has to come in or the camera's coming in while the actor's talking, maybe there's a chair that was previously established at the opening of the shot. So I have to sneak in uh, beneath Tut's camera and around Kira's boom and move, you know, move that chair silently out of the way so that those two can get through and do their job. So, so we really, the three of us, I'm really happy we're all here together today because we just worked very much tightly, I feel, as a unit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. We, we all became very good friends too. It's just, it's a delight. Honestly, it's a delight to see both of you. Yay! Yeah, feel the same way. Well, let's talk more about that. So we have television show that runs for twenty seasons. The seasons are long. Uh, in this era of uh, short six to ten episode seasons that we're seeing more and more, it might be hard for some people to recall what it was like to have twenty two episodes in a single season that you basically shot back-to-back over the course of, what would you say, seven, eight months? Is that about right? Eight or nine, nine. even, I think. And, nine, and, yeah. uh, and we actually did 24 episodes for a number of years. Yeah. And, uh, and then Law & Order became uh, the first show to do infamous tandem episodes and tandem shooting. We sort of established that pattern. I'd, I'd never heard of such a thing before that. Tandems are highly overrated. Tell me more about tandems. On Law & Order, it was even more extreme. You would do two episodes simultaneously and you'd split the crew appropriately so you had members of the crew on each episode. Um, but be, especially with Law & Order's format where it was uh, you know, the cop side and then the prosecutor side, you were able to devise a, a heinous schedule generally, which would allow both units to strain to coexist and you know, turnarounds where if one unit went late, the next unit was screwed the next day if they needed the other actors. There were all sorts of moving pieces that Law & Order was the first job to explore. Tandems are now kind of common, but they're usually days, not episodes at this point. I remember that uh, the production would try to sell it to us. You know, they'd be like, look, you, you, you don't have to put in as many days. You know, we can right. get this done in a shorter period of time. Yeah, Isn't that great? And we're, like, we're like, no, it's not great. It means I get two or three or, or a week less of work than yeah, I had, was, had counted it, on. It, yeah, on a season of TV, when you're doing tandems at this point, that means that the crew is missing out on on a full TV season of 22 days of work because someone mind. else has to do it. <laughs> no, I, right. So, it, it, there's something to be said for time off. There's no doubt that. Uh, for, for, always, for me, I'm sorry to interrupt. Yeah. But for me, you know, I had just, one of the reasons I, I took this job, I mean, I was very grateful to have it, but the, one of the big factors for me was that I, my wife had just had a baby hmm. and, and, you know, and I had done seven years of low paying non-union work. So this idea that I would be doing, 22 episodes a year, nine months a year. I, I was grateful for that. I was like, yeah, give it to me. Give me all the work I can get. Especially, days, I'll do them. I got diapers to pay for. Especially in New York. It wasn't super busy. That's so right. have, there was a time where Law & Order was literally the only job in town. And a couple of movies that would come through. We were all rather fortunate to, uh, 
to have steady work in a community. Yeah. You know, on the floor, we, we, there was a great degree of trust for the most part amongst the people who executed the moving parts on the floor, you know, on the set. That was very fortunate. Yeah, sometimes January, February would roll around and we'd be the only thing shooting. Yeah. I want to ask uh, some more questions about that. So it's a challenge to film in New York City. We'll talk about the specifics in a minute, but besides the fact that it was set there, why do you think they stuck with New York? Why didn't they try to get Montreal to look for New York and move up there? It's well, only New York looks like New York looks like <laughs> yeah. New York. Yeah. Well, I think and also, also the actors, though, too. Jerry Arbeck wasn't going to go to Montreal. Also, yeah. Well, there's that for sure. There's also the fact that when the show started, it was on a NABIT contract. We were all na- members of the union, you know, the NABIT Local 15, which was the alternate uh, local in New York. The IA was the dominant one. And when Law and Order started, the NABIT contract was an inferior contract to the IA contract. But as time wore on, it wasn't worth moving it because they would have had to up, you know, it, it probably wouldn't have made financial sense for them. And then at a point, here we were. I also, I don't know this firsthand, but I do have a book on my shelf over there about Law and Order that was published and written some years ago. And I do recall reading that one of the producers had said that they had considered at some point, I think after the pilot, maybe moving it up to Vancouver, which was a really, really popular place to shoot at the time because it's, it's much cheaper. But one thing they realized is that did, they didn't have enough people of color to put uh, in the background or in the jury boxes. And they also didn't have, you know, New York City has a wonderful, uh, you know, a, a, a whole stack of, of great actors. Off-Broadway, Broadway, commercials, soap operas. I literally remember one day just chit-chatting between shots with somebody playing like a doorman, right? like three lines. And he's like, yeah, you know, I'm going to be playing um, Hamlet tonight. Like, you know, are you a spear? No, he's like, no, I'm, I'm playing Hamlet. I'm, I'm Hamlet. Like, <laughs> but first, to get the big money, he had to say, well, we saw the dead body over there. You know, that was his big line. That's what Vancouver can't give you. We had, we had a lot of theater actors as guests, Elaine Stritch and uh, Len Cariou, and we had a lot of really amazing... Patty Lapone. Samuel L. Jackson you know, had a role very early on in Law and Order. I mean, all sorts of quality actors came through our mm-hmm. show. It was that was one of yeah, that was one of the best parts of Law and Order was the quality of, of actor, their understanding of the process. And it was a very, that those exchanges were very rewarding, I have to say. Let's talk more about that because certainly when I catch an episode on TBS, I'll often see someone who went on to become much more famous in some minor part or a character of the week at the time. What was that like, folks coming through? Any other particular memories of folks that later went on to do other things? Um, well, really, Claire Danes as a kid was in an early episode, and there was something wow. about her uh, that you could, there, there was a level of concentration and depth that, you know, seemed, she seemed to belong. They worked <laughs> with her on Homeland later, yeah. So many. I mean, I always had a great time with Giancarlo Esposito when he was young and came through. I always got a kick out of the character actors that I yeah. come across. That I, it's like that guy, you know. I remember, like, uh, who was it? The guy that played in Sesame Street, uh, who played Gordon. He was a he was a semi regular judge for us. And I think I think I think it was the season or two before me. The woman who played Madge, the Palm Olive Liquid Lady. She was a judge, and, and, I, and, and somebody told me, like, they show me, they, they have like a Polaroid with a, like her autograph, you know, of, of, of Madge. For your younger listeners, this was like the flow uh, insurance lady of the 1970s, Madge the Palm Olive Dish. Yeah, totally. <laughs> and then anytime we, had Dennis, anytime we had Dennis O'Hare, I got so excited. Yeah, we would get we, we would get our actors, they, they could only come once a year. And once a year, for several years, we would have Dennis O'Hare, and he was just so great. For our show, uh, which we all called The Mothership, once yes. SVU happened. You know, but, but during our Mothership years, it was a directive, I believe, from Dick Wolf that he didn't want celebrities. He didn't want some stunt casting. He wanted those character actors. He wanted somebody that had been like gotten bit parts playing, playing the attorney or the judge. We and had I Julia Roberts that, one year, though. Well, yeah. that was well she was going out with Benjamin. Though. <laughs> she was going out with Benjamin. It was the 200th episode, and they they were gonna they they got that extra hype in. But I think in general, it was like she was no, great. No stunt casting. Yeah, she was great. 
but I think SVU now that's that they 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 kind of altered that rule a bit. Well, tell me more about Dick Wolf. This is a Dick Wolf show. To what degree was his presence felt on a on a day by day basis on set? Uh, we'd see Dick occasionally, um, and certainly we were aware of his oversight and concern, but he wasn't part of our day-to-day -day existence on the floor. We met his, his son came to visit once when he was 12 years old for a day, and that was, that was interesting. But uh, Dick, you know, Dick, Dick was not a direct presence for us. Mostly. I'll just leave it at that. What I was going to say too is that um, I think the tenor of the show, being, being a part of the crew, it changed as time went on, and the show went from being a top 20 show to being a top five. By the time I left, there was a more sense of, a, of, of oversight from a lot of sources. Mm -hmm. When I first came on in, in 97, it really sort of felt like a, a, we were left alone. We just did our show. We, we knew how to do it. Uh, we knew how to do the camera setups. They were done a very certain way in a very specific style. The scripts were, were marvelous. Uh, so you just did the scripts. The only real interference with the network or, the, or the, even the producers uh, would be when somebody wanted to change a script on the set. Then they would have to make a phone call to L.A. and we would have to wait until somebody got back to us whether that, that scene or that line could be cut. Other than that, Not anymore. Verbatim. <laughs> yeah, it all changes. Now, now, now every show has, or most shows have a writer-producer who's present on the set, so th those conversations can happen more, you know, more, you know, readily. Tell me more about the regular cast. What was it like working with these folks who were there longer or folks who were there shorter? What memories do you guys have of the cast? A lot. Well, I, I think we all do. Um, you spend a lot of years together. And uh, there was a, a degree of closeness that comes on a TV show. I mean, uh, there were no 12-hour edicts by any networks or 13-hour maximums. We spent hours and hours a week together, days, you know. And, uh, and there was a closeness. And, and certainly, um, I think all of us shared that. For, for me, as, as a camera person on the show, the camera was handheld a great amount of the time, especially in the first half of the show. And with that, uh, there was a certain physical relationship with the actors. I'd often be right on their backs, like an umpire leaning on, on a catcher, you know, look at the pitcher or brushing through them. Or, you know, so, so there, was a, there was a lot of uh, trust, I think, between the cast and the crew and enjoyment. I think we all had some really, really special relationships with the actors on Law & Order, which some of which continue to this day, you know, and that's, that's one of the great blessings of the show. Good human I went beings. to Angie Harmon's wedding. That's, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> who were you close to, Kara? Who were your... Uh, I was really close to Angie. I, I feel like I was really close to Angie. After, um, I was intimidated when I first came on the show and I didn't really talk to the actors that much. And it wasn't until the end of Carrie Lowell that I realized what a really sweet, open, friendly person she was. And I saw her as, wow, she's a person, not just an actor. And, and then she was gone. And I was so <clears throat> mad at myself for not ha having been brave enough to make the attempt earlier to be friends with her. So that when Angie Harmon came on the show, I resolved to, to start a relationship right away. And her very first day, she had a walk and talk that was very long with uh, Ben and Jerry. And we were going on 20 takes and it was very difficult. Uh, you know, it was her first day and uh, she was having a very bad day. And after that, I went up to her and I said, we've had days like this. Don't worry about it. Just ask Ben. Because <laughs> when Ben started, you know, what was the stories? He had the same difficulties. And, and we bonded pretty much right after that. And we had, we've had a lot of, we had a lot of fun. Uh, she was a great lady. So, but yeah, I, f I felt closest to, to Angie, I think. Jerry was like a second uncle to me. He really was. In a lot of ways, Jerry was like the uncle I could go to. Early on, we realized we, we had things in common. You know, Jerry has a joke for every occasion on any subject. And, and he's always looking for a willing audience. And I'm always a willing audience. <laughs> but also, you know, he, of course, he, he's a legend from Broadway and Broadway musicals. And I'm a theater major. So even though I'm not a musical theater guy generally, I did know a lot of show tunes and stuff. So if, if he would start to sing something, I might go, oh, I love that song from Company or something like that. And he, he even, he had a, he loved, of all things, 
country music from the 1970s. Sure did. <laughs> yeah. And I grew up in West Virginia in the 1970s. So that was another thing that we had in common is that I knew who a lot of these songs or a lot of these songs and who the singers were. But all of them, though, Sam, I, 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 got, I got close to pretty much everybody. I felt close to Sam. Group. Sam was great. Incredible yeah. guy. And a yeah. great teacher, too. Sam was one of the better teachers on the show for me, I'll yes. say, as an actor. Uh, mm -hmm. he, he, got, he gets it, just gets it. My wife has worked in not-for-profit uh, charity work for a number of years, and certainly when I was on the show. And every time that, that my wife was involved with some sort of benefit for a charity, I knew that I could come to all of them and say, look, uh, we've got this cocktail party. I know it's Thursday night. It's, it's a rough night for you guys. But if you could just come by, maybe even say a few words, a few meet and greets, that would really be great. And they always did it. You know, Jerry, Sam, Apatha, Jesse, uh, Ben was there for some of them. Uh, Elizabeth Rome was there for some of them. They just, they just gave. There was a relationship there that we weren't just uh, the minions to their stars. They, we, we, were, we were co-workers. And they, yeah, they, they took us out to lunch sometimes. You know, yeah. Food. Often. I, I was, yeah. Jerry, I mean, I was thinking about the country music thing. Jerry would send word, Todd, uh, I need you in my dressing room. And I'd go in, he'd play me a, he'd play me a tune. Just he, he was thinking about it. He wanted to share a funny lyric or something. <laughs> yeah. And then I, I didn't, I, I found um, Jesse L. Martin to be a spectacular, a spectacular person and, uh, and someone who, who was, uh, you know, just uh, so talented, so damn talented and just such a, a beautiful soul. I always said his middle mm -hmm. initial L stood for love. It was amazing because when we got Jesse, we had three singers in. The police that's department. Right. <laughs> <And> <laughs> that's right. Because because Jesse had done rents on Broadway as well as some other things. And of course Jerry had done Forty Second Street and Apesa was also a singer. So it was completely delightful when we had the three of them on set and we were shooting in the precincts, you know, they would break out into something. But they you know, they were always singing in between takes and it was really a treat. Apatha was also I, I I feel like I realize more and more now. She was, she was the unafraid voice uh, on that set in terms of like when we'd have sexual harassment seminars or whatever, oh, yeah. there was, if there was an issue to be voiced, Apatha did not give a shit. No, she was all any, over it. She was yep. all over it. And, and, and some, you know, if, if she thought something was sexist or racist in the script or that somebody said, she would call them on it. And, and nowadays, especially as I get older, I realize that was, that was A, brave, because she risked being unpopular with people and and b it was just it, it's what we should have all done a little bit more than than maybe we did but then again when you're number four or five on the call sheet it's a little easier than when you're on the back of the call sheet to bring <laughs> <laughs> well let's talk more about what the challenges of the show um, and I want to go in a little more depth, but as a transition, how did the actors take to these challenges, particularly the regular actors who did have some pull about scheduling or sort of the frustrations you guys briefly expressed earlier with the tandem shooting? How did the actors take to that arrangement? My first thought was Jerry turning to everybody and going, come on, everybody, Elaine's got a baked potato waiting for me at home. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jerry would also, uh, especially with new directors, we would do things called oneers which was a way of getting all the dialogue in the scene in one shot. And we always strive to do that. And every once in a while, we would get a new director in there who, didn't, who really wasn't down with it or didn't understand it. And Jerry would teach them. He would say, what if, I, what if while you're looking at Ben saying his line, what if I came by and picked up a stapler and said my line? And then, and then, and then when my other line came in, I would just come around the back again and like stapler back. You know, he would try anything, you know, to shorten the day. Like, we, this could be a one or I'll just stay my... He would do anything. He was just so accommodating. He had, there was almost no ego as far as like, how did he look? Was he getting enough attention? He was just like, nope, let's just make this efficient. Or we do take five and he'd finish with, what else you want to do? <laughs> Don't put your foot to the through director. a Rembrandt. Yeah, let's not put our foot yeah. through a Rembrandt. Yeah, totally. yeah. We also had Stephen Hill who was um, a little on the older side of the- The uh, heat shield. Yeah, so we, I, we would schedule his scenes all in one day. There'd be like the Stephen Hill day, because that's about all you could, you could ask of somebody in his particular physical state and, and advanced age. Stephen uh, was 
is very important in the Orthodox Jewish community in Orange County in New York. And uh, he used to wear that as a way of making sure he didn't have to work Friday nights. There was one time where he demanded a Friday off for religious reasons, but he was going down to Carolina. He was in Billy Bathgate at that time at the same time. And uh, he had this whole thing about needing a serious break for you know, a holiday of some sort. And uh, they found him in a shopping mall in North Carolina with his wife, like the producers were down there on vacation on the same weekend. Mm -hmm. yeah, so Stephen, Stephen was a character. He, uh, a fascinating actor, you know, but uh, he came from a bygone, he was really good friends with Marlon Brando and, uh, and used to really swing with Marlon early and then found religion later on is my understanding. So Stephen had this whole old school kind of 1950s, a form of bohemian actor craziness going on too. Stephen didn't like feeling the heat of the stand-in's body on the chair. <laughs> right. He didn't like sitting in a chair that was warmed by the person who had been sitting in for him. So yes. Dan had to, what we say, deploy the heat shield. Which he called was it the heat a, shield. Put a piece of duvetine or something, other cloth, underneath the background actor so that when the background actor or it was when the standing actor got up he wouldn't have heated up the chair so with that, that was is a, correct a daily thing I, deploy I, the heat shield i had a yeah. i had a rolling kit box of all kinds of things included and there was like a folded up piece of duvetine all hemmed uh, uh stitched on each side and uh, and, it, and it was labeled you know the heat shield and yeah we I had to deploy the heat shield. i have to say the, the district attorney's part went to some really interesting people mm. for me. Um, there was Stephen, who was a true character for all sorts. He actually um, asked for an assistant director to be fired because the, the marking tapes on the ground, he said, resembled a swastika. And it, wasn't, it, it, wasn't, it was not the case, but he had all these wild things going on. So Stephen had all these... In interesting machinations. It, it, it was a whole dance with Stephen, I have to say. But then we had other fascinating characters. Um, Diane Wiest. Oh, yeah. Um, Diane needed to be, for me, I, she needed to be talked into going into profile. She didn't like profile. So I had Tootsie Pops in my pocket because she loved Tootsie Pops. And I would tell her that she could have a Tootsie Pop if she went profile and she would do it. <laughs> I didn't know that. We kept that on this, uh, that was, but, uh, and, and then Fred Thompson came in and Fred had been the attorney for the Watergate hearings for the Republican party. He sat right behind Howard Baker when I was a kid and then he became the Senator. And the first day he came in, we had skirt day actually. And we all wore skirts and he was really bug eyed about that. Um, <laughs> and then I, and then later, that week, I asked him if he would slide to his left and make my mother happy. And he thought that was a good one. He, he actually had a great sense of humor. So, you know, we felt each other out over time. And he was really, you could actually talk with, with, uh, with him about politics and, uh, and disagree. He was, he, it, that, which is all lost these days. No one listens to each other. Well, Kira had a really important job with Diane Wiest in her, oh. in the first couple of weeks. That's right. Dick Wolf had told Diane Wiest um, that she should speak in a lower register. As you know, she starts with a very high, lilting voice, but he wanted her to speak like, rawr, rawr, rawr. and she <laughs> couldn't remember. And so she, yeah, so Diane had asked me to remind her to, you know, to speak lower when she was not. It's very strange. I just, I, I remember it very specifically, Kira, as it'd be like, okay, uh, roll camera, roll sound, speed, and, and you'd go, Lower. You'd just say like you'd have to. You'd have to say lower. Action. I liked her so much. Yeah, she was cool. But she really was, she was so cool. miscast. She yeah. she really was unhappy because she's she brought a lightness to the set that we enjoyed but didn't belong. She made things fun. She was a, she's a comedian. She was made things funny, and then they'd be like, no, no, no. She actually said that at the end of a take, she turned into the camera and addressed Dick Wolf right to the lens and said, Why? you said this would be funnier, Dick. You said this, <laughs> you said this would be funny. And she, she told him off at the end of a take. She's like, she, why did you hire me? Oh Why am I here? <laughs> yeah. yeah, she won two Oscars, for God's sake. But uh, yeah, not, not for Judgment at Nuremberg, for she light, was and comedies. Yeah, yeah, she was cool. 
So going back to the issue of the tandems, you talk about some of the challenges and, and the actors and trying to move things along. So when you're shooting both at once, does that mean that one part of the crew is shooting, say, the police stuff, and then the other side is shooting the court? Or was it more of a, you're both on stage, but just on different sets? Like, how did that, how did that break down in actual filming? Usually the trucks went out and did location. So we were, we did have two different sets. So you could have a, you could have someone working on the main set and then there was a courtroom set at a point, you know, so you could, and I'm sure they, I, they must've done it that way sometimes, but usually it meant that the trucks could go out with one unit and then, uh, and then the other unit would be on stage. And often at the end of the day, you'd have one scene with like the, you know, our young district attorney um, to finish the day so that the cop turnaround was held intact for the next day. And, you know, there, there are all sorts of games they played to make sure that, you know, they could try their best to keep to a schedule, you know, and as a crew, we kept getting better and the days did get shorter. I mean, originally we were doing 16 hour days and saw 7 a.m. every Saturday and we got to a place where we were much more disciplined and, and, and uh, you know, just tuned into our tasks and our rhythm was much better. So. We were the fastest crew in New York for a while. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, I, I, I think it was partly because of what Tut was saying that we got, we got better at our jobs. But I think everybody from the top on down to, to what everybody on the crew, we all picked up on, on the, and it, I, it, I don't mean this uh, in an insulting way, but we, we all picked up on the formulaic part of the show. Sure. So that even just looking at my, I'd be given um, the sides, which is the, the small script pages of what we're shooting that day. I'd look at it. And more often than not, I could go like, okay, well, this one's going to be done in one. I think this is going to have to be, you know, this with, with, with two over the shoulders. I mean, I think it got to the point where, where most of us probably, with all due respect to you, Tut, and anybody else, sure. I think a great many of us could have directed a Law & Order because Law & Order directors were hired to make their shows in a very specific manner. That, that there were directors that got in trouble sometimes for trying to redefine the what the show was visually or or editorially and that was a no-no that dick wolf believed that people tuned in because they liked the formula it was comfort food they knew not Absolutely. only that the first half hour was cops and the second half hour was was attorneys but even you know they knew that the very first person interview very first suspect interviewed was most likely not the killer <laughs> the, poor, the, poor, the poor black kid on the basketball court is not your killer. More often than not, it's that rich white guy uh, in, in the penthouse. That's the guy that usually did it. And there was, a, there, there, there was something that, it, it wasn't just about like a whodunit show. It was more about a whydunit show or, or what themes are we exploring? Because then the rich white guy would say, well, I did it, but here's my reason and here's my defense. And the second half would be about well, is that defense valid or not? Can you justify a murder if you believe these things? That was oftentimes a theme or, 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 or concept in the show. But, it's, uh, it was always the guest star. It was <laughs> the killer was always the guest star. I mean, yeah, almost always. So <laughs> no big secrets. That's how they got people on. They get to play that part. Well, talking about uh, how the crew got better over time, we're talking about 20 seasons. It reminds me of uh, some of what we talked about at the start of the show. So let's start with you. You came on as a focus puller, and by the end, you were doing uh, director photography work, and you've gone on to direct since then. What was that like transitioning from job to job? And what were the opportunities on Wall of Order? Well, I, I've always felt that uh, television saving grace, if a show lasts long enough, is that uh, there are often opportunities to explore something new. Um, I've been very lucky. Uh, like every every several years, I've I've gotten itchy and I've been able to move into new territory. And being on a show like Law and Order guaranteed that in a way, you know, because in the natural progression of things, people move on, things change. You can express your interest. People get to know you, and you develop a trust that allows for that next step to happen. The transition from focus puller to operator was a very tricky one. Camera department work, every time you bump up, the skill set's really not closely related to the one you had before. So you really have to get a new, um, it's a sensibility thing. It's, as a focus puller, you don't let anything go. As an operator, you have to let things go and let them flow differently. So 
you have to recalibrate. And it was a, a real trial by fire becoming an operator. I, was, I had some very rough moments and was treated pretty toughly as things developed in my early years as operating. But, you know, you see it through and I moved on for a little while and did jobs elsewhere and, and felt better. And when I came back, I was able to wear the role differently. And uh, the actors always liked having me around, which was a saving grace too. And, uh, and with that, uh, became a welcome member in a new capacity. And, and then uh, I got to become a cinematographer because um, our, the cinematographer at the time uh, got sick and ended up coughing himself into bad back spasms and couldn't be there for weeks. And so I got a chance to start shooting and everybody liked it. So they started figuring out ways to help me do more of it. Um, I'm glad, I was proud to say my days were shorter. I saved an hour or so a day. And, and I think that meant a lot to everybody, you know, uh-huh. especially people, <laughs> especially unfortunately people, you know, crew certainly, but people signing the checks were enjoying that uh, hour less of double time. And uh, so they found ways to help put me in the mix more for that. Well, I think also we should give credit before we forget to of some of the people that really set up that system. Uh, or the main person, I think, uh, being Ed Sharon, who was the executive producer for a number of years. And Ed, Ed was a one-of-a-kind person. I'll just leave it at that. Uh, he was, he was, he's a legend. He, he was a famous Broadway director. He was married to Jane Alexander. And he was brought on to be the, the executive producer and showrunner. And he was the one that implemented that system of if, if you have a desire to be a director, you can, you can work your way up the chain and you can do it. And, and Kira's boss and good friend Dave Platt was a sound mixer. And I, I, I don't know if there are that many sound mixers uh, turned to- I turned don't to know of any. No, Dave. Other ones. Yeah. I remember- and He was great. Yeah, yeah. He was, Platt still works constantly today yeah. as director. I, I remember Platt telling me that he, you know, he came up to Ed and he said, you know, I, I think I could be a director. And, and Ed said, well, tell you what, um, why don't you go stage a show, stage for me a, 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 like a, one, a series of one acts, get a, get a theater somewhere and, and put that on and, and, and I'll come see it. And if I like what you, do, what you did with the actors, I'll hire you as a director. And true to his word, he did that. And, and I think another person we, we got to not forget to give credit to in terms of, of that and also just the overall tone of the show was Gus Macris, the director of, of photography who won three Emmys uh, for his work. Uh, and that was groundbreaking cinematography. Everybody does handheld now. But we yeah. were one of the first. And uh, you know, Gus, Gus was like, well, I want this to be like Battle of Algiers. He would, he would say that often. It was a famous old black and white movie uh, that used handheld to give that documentary feel. And you see it all over the place now. Succession and all these other shows do handheld. Uh, somebody can correct me, but I think we were the first. Certainly, absolutely. There are very few handheld shows before Law and Order, they, or they went there for very specific moments. Um, you know, part of that was camera evolution. The cameras just were under sixty pounds, just mm-hmm. under sixty pounds. Yeah. <sighs> Gus, Gus did have those incredible visual ambitions, and particularly the first couple of years, worked really hard establishing a look, and I, he worked so hard. I always was tickled because he used to say his true ambition as a cameraman was to shoot the Joe Franklin show. And, uh, <laughs> and he actually got to on a Tracy Ullman uh, HBO thing. He got to shoot Joe Franklin doing an interview with Tracy Ullman and his life was complete as a, as a cinematographer. <laughs> yeah, and Gus was tough. I mean, when, when Tut was alluding to the toughness of having to be the operator, I'm sure he was at least in some way referring to Gus. Gus had standards. And he expected everybody else, no matter what the position, to have those same standards. And sometimes he wasn't fair. Sometimes he could be insulting, etc. But he also, he was one of those guys that he, he had a tough exterior and a heart of gold. He was, he was all mm-hmm. kinds of things. Uh, so yeah, he was great. And uh, he could be so many things. He could be your worst enemy in one moment and your best buddy in the next. I remember distinctly arguments between my boss, Dave Platt, and Gus Macris, Gus Macris being about what five six, and my boss being six foot four, and, and my boss, you know, Dave Platt towering over Gus, waggling his finger, 
as he liked to do when he was making a point. And the, it got, it was, the, the arguments were quite passionate at times. Yeah, I, I would call Gus uh, affectionately my, my tormentor occasionally, uh, which he thought was pretty funny. Um, but he was an incredible teacher and uh, an incredible filmmaker. And, and really a good, uh, a, a good man too. You know, again, for all of his sometimes very strict standards on a set, he made it a point that he knew every person on that set and knew what they did. And if he felt like he needed more support from the AD department, he knew every PA's name. So he could say, I need so-and-so to get me the actor from, from the dressing room number three right now because we're losing the light or something like that. And he didn't tolerate when somebody was just standing around not doing their work and he could spot that. And it'd be like, I, I expect you to put in the same intensity that I do, which is impossible because Gus was always the most intense person on any set. Yep. I can imagine, I can imagine Gus as a cinematographer in this day of cell phones. Oh my God. <laughs> there would be more broken cell phones on that set. It'd just be a big pile of, of smashed up cell phones. I have a feeling. Every once in a while, he'll come to a show that I'm on. You know, if I'm on a, if I'm on a TV show, an episodic, every once in a while, he'll come in, and it's always such a nice, such a nice reunion. <laughs> and he, and he always, and he's always such a more efficient director than many of the others mm -hmm. on the show. You know, he'll come in and be like, "Nah, we're do this, 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 and this," and it's, it's like a breath of fresh air sometimes. Yeah, and he was a teacher to me too, Todd. In that. Um... You know, in those days, I, being, being the late 90s into the early 2000s, we did have monitors on the set, but the monitors were really small. I can't yeah. I don't even know what size they were. Nine, they were nine inch nine at inch that point. Thing, yeah. and, and black and white. Yeah. And so, but I would stand next to the monitor during a rehearsal and Gus, whether he was DP or, or director, he would turn to me and he'd point to something on that little tiny black and white monitor. He'd say that move that, move that just three inches over, you know? And I would do it and I'd realize, oh yeah, that looks so much better, just that three inches over. And then uh, of course monitors then, then uh, evolved into much larger and color and everything. But what Gus also taught me is sometimes what you're seeing on the monitor doesn't tell you everything, that sometimes you just have to stand next to the lens and just look and think what can be better what's what's missing or what's too much what can we take away to make a better frame and i learned a lot of that directly from gus mackers and i i again i got yelled at him on occasion but i have nothing but love in my heart for gus mackers <laughs> Ted, you talked about moving up the ladder within the camera department were there some departments that were more stable than others or was this kind of movement steady across the crew it, it felt like it happened across the crew. I mean, it, in the electrical, in the electric and grip world, there were changes over time, but, uh, but early on in the show, and then uh, uh, we had a different key grip for each of the first two years, and then Carl Peterson took over, and Carl was there forever. And Carl was, a, Carl was an institution in himself. And when, uh, when the company, they did a Law & Order Monopoly game as a, as a present, the only member of the crew who actually had a chance or community chest card was Carl because he was famous for his tool belt. And it was about his, his huge, uh, the huge uh, bag of tools he wore on his, on his hip. Um, so Carl became an institution. Um, in the electrical world, there were uh, two gaffers uh, the first couple of years and then Bill Clare took over as gaffer. And Bill was gaffer for a long time and then became a director at Law & Order himself. Uh, Bill's one of the, finest people on the face of the earth. So um, spending that time with him was, he was another one of those people um, on Law & Order who really made a difference in, in terms of making it a positive experience. Bill was one of those people. So, uh, but those departments, once that happened, they were pretty stable. And one, you know, and, you know, but what people came and went, we were there long enough, some people got took ill and, and even passed away or, you know, and so within the prop department, like uh, Fred Chalfie, right? Um, he was a prop master for a, a number of years and was very close with a number of us and, and passed away. And with that, you know, Ron Stone came along. It was a time in New York where um, ha having a job, uh, was, it was important consideration. There wasn't the work there is now. 
Um, Jerry Orbach used to say, never leave a hit show. He used to say that all the time. Uh, never leave a hit show. And, we, and that was, in its way, quite solid advice. I mean, I'm, I'm really glad I left on the occasions I did. It was important to me in many different ways, in terms of family and, and in terms of just strengthening myself career-wise. But that did speak to all of us, as Dan was talking earlier, was we were the only job in town at times, so. Well, but, you know, I, I honestly wish I had left when Jerry left. Mm -hmm. uh, Jerry left, you know, not voluntarily, really. Jerry left because he got cancer, and he died not that long afterward. But I had said at the beginning what, what attracted me to the job was I had just had, I was starting a family, and I, I needed the work, I needed the money. But what really kept me there it was was the crew and and that feeling of family that that I would see Kira and Dave and Carl and and, uh, and Miles who Carlos Carl always called him Miles Miles and 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 yeah and Dave Platt and all these just all these wonderful people and Gus Mathis and 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 that you would go in for breakfast and Jerry Orbach is is in line next to you scooping up scrambled eggs that that there was that that interaction with the actors. But that changed for me uh, as the show got more and more successful. There started to be a, a bit more of a corporate feel to the show, a more feel, a feeling of, of other people are dipping their fingers into our success and taking credit for the work that we were doing. And, and there were also more rules. And, and, and as Tut was saying, there was more of an emphasis on, well, you're doing great, work faster. Or you're doing such a great job, the reward is to do more, uh, is to be given more. And so by the time I left, there was a real feeling that this was no longer our little law and order. It was NBC Universal's law and order, and that we were mere uh, replaceable parts. When a show runs this long, there are changes in how it's done. You talked about things getting more efficient. Now some, it sounds like there was a bit of uh, corporization as the, as the show got more popular. Other changes, other benefits from the show's ongoing time or success? Well, I mean, one of the benefits was that, again, we had this contract that went all the way back to... We had 1990. 1990. We had the best contract in town at that point. Yeah. Because it was, it, it had gone back that year. And one of the provisions of the contract was that every year we get a 3% raise. Nobody expecting the show to last for 20 years. So <laughs> that's like interest accruing in the bank, right? So that was, that was a good thing. You know, that was a wonderful thing. A shorter weekend turnaround. We did have night premiums, uh, but they kept getting later. But we were the only job in town that had a weekend turnaround and night premium at a point. And the, the pay structure was such that in, in the world of NABIT, department heads didn't get paid a ton more in rate than their, than their seconds and thirds. So that it was a place where, as a, you know, as a, you know, not the key in a department, but you were still making... You were you were making it was a it was a it was a beneficial contract. It, it, those, a lot of things in the long order contract don't exist anymore, and that that's an unfortunate thing for workers, I'd say. Let me also ask you guys to get into a time machine for a moment and talk to us about the differences between filming in the 1990s versus today. Well, uh, I remember Law and Order has always been a uh, location intensive adventure. In at the beginning of Law and Order and, and New York filmmaking in general. Um, we were accustomed to the inconvenience of location shooting. Uh, we shot in all types of weather. Um, in any, we get, went anywhere in the city, and it was a time in New York which uh, had a lot more challenges. Uh, the city was a more violent place back then, aside from anything. There was a night where we came back to our parked cars outside our courtroom, and all 20 of our windows had been smashed. We used to get parking permits, and we all parked together. On, they would find a a row of, you know, a street that was out, a little bit out of the way. And we all had tags to park. Uh, that's something that I miss tremendously. That was, but, uh, but with that, we came back to our cars and every window had been smashed. But then, uh, and we had bottles hurled at us from rooftops occasionally. We'd watch our, our movie cops who were, you know, our, our movie division uh, police who really weren't used to interacting a lot with the public, uh, having to go chase people reluctantly. But that was what they were there for. Um, we, we didn't have tents, so we really fell prey to the weather. Um, we, weather gears improved tremendously in the last several years. Um, I had sheets of visqueen 
and spring clips just to tighten up over my cases to protect them from rain. There were no easy up tents. Uh, heaters were unheard of in the winter time. Initially, when I started Law & Order, we all needed quarters in order to make our crew calls at the end of the day. For the next day, we didn't, we didn't have cell phones. Remember the first like attache-sized cell phone coming to set and it cost 60 cents a minute to make a call. And uh, you know, so you weren't making your crew calls on that sucker, that's for sure. Um, you know, so things have, things have changed mightily you know, between the computers in our hands now and, uh, and just overall abilities to keep ourselves in a, I wouldn't call it comfort, but in a, in a lesser state of discomfort. Um, when we're working outside, uh, those things have moved to a whole different place now. And directions also. I mean, I started work as a locations assistant, and now, you know, you find the directions to the set. You just punch it into your phone, and away we go. You can any number of places, but back then you had to, you had to rely on somebody, you know, writing out directions. And, and you know, and copying a map, and sometimes they were not good directions, and you'd find yourself lost with no recourse because you know they're sending you someplace in the Bronx, and you don't know where you are, and the directions are wrong, and <laughs> there's a lot more stress involved with even getting to work. I find. Well, when I came on in '97, again the show had been uh, going then for seven years at that point, and I just I I I do remember one time. It, you know, we might have been out on a street in Inwood or something at like three in the morning on a Friday night, you know, 25 degrees or so, windy by the river. And I started just complaining about it, you know, how this sucked. <laughs> and then I realized you don't complain in your seventh season about something sucking because there will always be somebody to tell you, yeah, but back in season one, we did 20 hour days and we were always by the river and it was always 10 degrees. It was like telling your parents that you, 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 you have to walk to school six blocks. You know, you're going to hear a much worse story in, in return. So I learned to keep my mouth shut. And then later on, when I had gotten a few years under my belt, we were in the courtroom one night. Courtroom days were always long days. They would tend to be at 14 hour or something like that. And I remember some person on the crew, some younger person than myself, saying like, oh my God, isn't this just awful? And I, I, it was my turn. And I said, wait a minute, we're inside, we're on double time. Somebody just came around with a tray full of pizza bagels. This, this is not bad. <laughs> I find myself saying that a lot too, to younger people. And, so they, and it's funny, because you see camera people now, they have this thing, uh, some people call it the humiliator. It's this, it's, it's a way of doing handheld, but you've got sort of like this big apparatus that comes up over your head with the strings. Easy rig. It. Easy rig. And they're, and they're acting all like, oh, I got this, I got to do handheld, blah, blah. And all I could think of was you, Tud, and holding that thing. And, and, and the poor camera assistant had to lift that huge thing off your shoulder and put it back on and like how intensive it was. And all these guys have got all this gear to make things easier and they're still complaining about it. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. I, 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 I used to have to make my own pads for the camera. There were no camera pads really that worked properly. And I used to check every, um, I used to check every uh, set for an office chair with wheels that didn't make noise. And they never, I never <laughs> found <you>. one. No. <laughs> uh, and I never, because there were no butt dollies. So I would, no. I would just get into a crouch and, and I figured out a legwork that would allow me to take my 55 pound camera on a trip, you know, three and a half feet off the ground, you know, and um, it, it was, it was hard. It was hard, but, but, you know, rewarding. I really dug, the, I, I loved that work. I loved the camera. I would look over at you sometimes tight uh, during a particularly difficult shot and you would be beat red and just <laughs> soaked from head to toe in sweat. Yeah. It was just, I just felt so bad for you. It's like, okay, and on this next one, we're gonna follow Briscoe and Curtis up the stairs, <laughs> <laughs> down the hall. Jerry. Yeah. And, Jerry. and land on the iris of the dead person or something like that. It's like, oh my God. I was always honored because Jerry used to call me the worst paid professional athlete in America. <laughs> and I, I always loved that one. Well, talk to me about another legacy of this show. As we mentioned at the start, there were five spinoffs, Special Victims Unit, which is still running, Criminal Intent, Trial by Jury, Los Angeles, 
true crime. Did you guys work any of those other shows? I did a single one. I was brought in when they were doing a tandem that I, for whatever reason, was they decided they needed two prop masters. Uh, the longtime prop master, Mike Saccio, uh, who's, who's been there forever, uh, brought me in. And uh, it, it was fine, it, but it was, it, it, was, it was sort of like going back to your high school after you've already graduated. I, I really felt like I had no business being there, and it was just kind of, kind of strange for me. And Dan, was that on SVU specifically? Like you mean yes, more recently? Yes, SVU. It was just a very different vibe. And, uh, and again, I, I, just, I, I didn't want to go into like, well, I remember when stories with these, these folks, but it, it really just felt odd. I, I couldn't wait to get out of there, to be, to be frank. They were very nice people. I just felt very out of place. Each, each show was very different in its tenor and you know, sense of community. Although again, yeah, like Dan said, I, I, had, I, I had friends on all these different crews and, and it was fun for me to be there for the most part. But I did a couple of episodes uh, as, a, as an, an additional operator on, uh, on SVU, uh, mostly because uh, they had a cinematographer there for their first number of years, a man named Jeffrey Erb, who was, um, I had always heard the most amazing things about and I'd always heard about how, how um, deeply his crew respected and loved him. And I really just wanted to check him out. Uh, he had, I think it was Parkinson's, but he was wheelchair bound uh, for the last several years of, of his cinematography career. I mean, this was a crew that was known to carry him up flights of stairs to get to the next location. They really loved the guy. And uh, I, I went there just to check him out and I understood why. And he lit, it was, he lit from off axis. He would sit in his wheelchair and look at a really crummy monitor strapped to the arm of his wheelchair from off axis and beautifully light Mariska, who, you know, he, he treated her, you know, like number one, you know, the number one on the call sheet and, and star that she is. And uh, it was fascinating to me to see his approach. And so I enjoyed that a lot. And I did a couple of episodes on Criminal Intent where I, I was wickedly fascinated by Vincent D'Onofrio. And had a, I've always had good times with odd actors. And uh, I had a, a really enjoyable time with Vincent and uh, was amazed at how different the, the rules of grammar were on visually and camera wise on criminal intent than they were on law and order. And there were times where I was doing things on what was a law and order show that to me were completely antithetical to the way we treated them upstairs. Their sets were downstairs in Chelsea Pierce. But with that, it was fun to be on a different set and explore, you know, different sides of the law and order world. It was, it was, uh, but I, I like the mothership the best for sure. I worked a little bit on criminal tent and SCU and, um, it just, it just wasn't the same. They didn't have, I felt they didn't have the same sense of unity and, and core sort of happiness because I feel like as miserable as the circumstances were, I didn't feel that there was animosity between us. You know, it was like sort of like us against the world, <laughs> you know, and we all argued, but it felt like a family arguing. And when they got yelled at you, you're like, oh, dad's mad. It, you know, <laughs> yeah. but, it, but you didn't take it. All, it wasn't like, oh no, I'm gonna get fired, or oh no, I nobody likes me. It was just like, oh, I made Gus mad, and that's unfortunate. Yeah. But then it would pass over. So, but on some of the other shows, I just I didn't feel that same grounding. I've I've always said that doing an episodic television show network, particularly since now they're shorter seasons, but doing a season of TV, it's like a it's like dog years. It's seven human years for every for every actual year that you spend on a TV show. Yeah. I don't know how we did it. I mean, I'm on a 13 episode <laughs> show right now, and it's like freaking crawling to the finish line. Like, oh my god, this is so horrible. And we've only been we started in July. You know, we're only going into December. Like, boo-hoo. We used to go from July to April. Yeah. <laughs> missing, missing January, February you know. sounds good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was in my late 20s or something, or maybe 30 at that point. I'm, you know, a little different now. I, I'm The show I'm on at the moment, I'm, I'm manning a desk. You know, I'm, I'm making sure the trucks go in and out on time and get the right stuff. And I'm happy as a clam doing that. I don't know if I'll ever be on a film set again and I, I don't know if I'll miss it it's uh, it's I've actually I had a, a period of time this year where I, I wasn't on set and stepping back on the muscle memory is there so you you know for, for all that I, I totally understand what you're saying you, you belong on a set any day you choose to Dan Fisher <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, we talked about at the beginning about the seasons you guys spent on Law & Order. Um, all of you had left before the final season, but tell me a little more about what, in retrospect, were your greatest takeaways from the show when you went on to other work? Well, it, it really instilled in me, again, this was my first sort of big union job, one that I went to consistently. I had been sort of flitting in and out of different jobs uh, in the union before then. And just the, the discipline of that crew, the, the regularity of the schedule, uh, it, it really, it, is, it does put a muscle memory into you. It, it develops your muscles. You know, all film sets have discipline. All film sets have schedule. But this one was clockwork. There were things expected of you. You knew what your job was. You did your job. There was no, if you had a moment to, to look at a newspaper, you did that. But you knew that any second you would be in there doing what you had to do. And, and I've, I've, I don't know if I've ever seen a crew that has worked together as a unit so perfectly as that unit. Because again, a lot of us were there together for so many years. We, we knew each other's habits. We knew sometimes when to leave each other alone and, and, and give, you know, we knew when somebody was in a bad mood and, and to sort of lay off of it. I had a great friend in the, the focus puller for many years, Pete Ramos, because Pete could see my mood coming. And when I first started booming, I would get very, I would get very frustrated. There's so many, every department, there's so many things to get frustrated by. And he would, uh, when he saw me sort of, start to boil he would just come up and go Zip! and like make a, a you know a, his, put his fingers together like shut it Zip! Zip! he was my best friend on set for doing especially that yeah. it's it really good to have I've, I've I, bought, been... I bought my first I bought my first used car from Pete Ramos <laughs> it was a good car Pete's uh, I, I'm lucky because I've spent at, since Law and Order Pete and I've been together uh, for years since he, he's he's you know that culture of growing from within he came to damages with me and he became my a camera operator and he's a wonderful camera operator and that's what he's doing these days we we've been together from law and order through the time where I kind of made my split to start pursuing directing more and uh, having Pete there he is an he is an incredible guy to have by your side and and he offers a beautiful stable humorous kind approach to the world. And, and the more I do this, the more kindness becomes the most important part of any day. That's one of the things that Law & Order taught you too, because there was, there was kindness amongst ourselves and there was some unkindness too. And you, you know, I, I think learning by ne negative example is an important thing too, but within that, we, it was that family and we allowed each other those moments. You know, we always understood that there was a trust amongst at least the core group of us. There were some crazy things that went on in the periphery. Every, Every community, you know, there were there were some there were some harassment moments and and hu human relations moments and the first uh, sexual harassment seminars actually that I ever uh, participated in were Law and Orders uh, in the courtroom after lunch and uh, the movie they showed us was so bad that's one of the times Apatha got up and started yelling about how insulting things were and um, some of us on the crew um, a very creative soul designed a movie that starred. Uh, our actors and we made our own sexual harassment spoof movie, which was one of the highlights of my Law & Order career in many ways, so. That so-called creative soul was me. <laughs> when I first started working at Law & Order, I actually got plantar fasciitis because there's just no way I was used to being on my feet for that long. I don't know, I really feel like I learned, from Law Order, I just learned sheer constitution <laughs> it was sheer, sheer persistence that there was no giving up that no you're still working and we still have to shoot this thing you know this is your job and you you it's tough and you you have to be here and i don't know i just i feel like it may be a lot tougher me too you know, it just gave me a lot more endurance you know so i learned a lot it was like a second college in a way it was better than college for me i, I have to say that it it gave me a much greater a uh, sense of filmmaking matrix. The, there's no doubt that part of uh, why I feel I'm able con can contribute today is what Law and & Order and the rhythm of that show and our colleagues and our approach brought to it. I'm definitely a better filmmaker for having been there, no doubt. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that, uh, I don't know, I'm sure I took days off here and there, getting sick and so forth. I don't think Carl Peterson ever took a day off, ever. No, I but, never did um, either. But I remember times when I would feel sick and I would have to take a day off, how, how badly I felt that I was going to be missing that day and, and that I was somehow letting people down, that I had, you know, I had an obligation, that, that I, I had a role to play there and that maybe it wasn't going to be handled because I wasn't there to do it. When I am on set or when I am around a, a set, one of the, the, the great things for me is when I run into somebody like Kira or Dave, just somebody that was on the show, uh, on the crew especially, after, after all these years, it's, we, we do have a camaraderie. I know that Kira has a, a Facebook page now, I think devoted to those of us who were veterans of, of, of the mothership. Yeah. And it's, it's just wonderful. And, and it makes me realize too, like, we, we did have people, like I went to funerals from, to some of these people. Fred Chalfie died, Anthony, our craft service. Anthony. You know, there was death, there was birth. You know, we had, we had people that, that, that started dating and then got married and had babies all in the course of that show. It was a real lifetime of, of a show for us. And, and, and the, again, I, I see those kids now on set. Some of them are, are PAs. And it's like, I, I remember when, when they were running so around. Claire's kid's a focus puller. Claire, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Again, it had that loose, especially early on, it had that loose, we're, we're, we're all just making a show here vibe. It wasn't like, well, we're making product for the, uh, for the machine. It just felt like, we're just a bunch of filmmakers. Uh, you want to bring in a kid, bring in a kid. You know, have lunch with, with uh, daddy or whatever. Or, or, you know, bring friends over to, you know, meet Sam Waterston. You could just do that. And, 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 and people didn't interfere a whole lot with that. And that was just so wonderful. Well, very clear there was a family vibe on that set. You guys learned a lot of lessons. Really appreciate you guys coming on and talking to about us today. Thanks so much, guys. Thanks, Thanks kid. Thank I could do this all day. Good to see you guys. Good to see you. Listeners, I'd love to hear what you thought of the episode. You can send an email to skid, S-K-I-D, at blowtheline1word.biz. That's B-I-Z. I also appreciate your feedback via iTunes, where I review your ratings and comments, and Facebook, where I post photos and other behind-the-scenes materials and podcasts below the line. Please do rate us and tell your friends. And finally, for updates and other info, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram. On both platforms, search for Podboard. Thanks to Curtis Five for our music and John Wong for our logo. The logo is available on t-shirts, mugs, and stickers at redbubble.com. Thanks for listening. Join us again for a new episode next week. Always a pleasure to be here, Skid. Uh, I think the last time I made a joke about being the David Brenner of your show, um, maybe maybe it's more like being like, who's that guy that was always on sitcoms? Ted McGinley. I'm now, Ted see, McGinley now. Actually, and see, Dan, I warned you about this. You have not yet made that joke. That's not coming out till next year. So <laughs> you've already okay, welcome me again. Time I be funny this week. <laughs> it's just kind of a cool flash forward. That's all. <laughs> yeah. We're gonna do as a it's like lost.